Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. As of August 2nd, we have resumed in-person worship services on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We are committed to the health and safety of our families and will continue to offer our simultaneous live stream at youtube.com slash area 10 faith community. We hope you'll join us at the Bird Theater again soon, but in the meantime, we're providing the best possible online experience we can for you. Now, on to this week's message. About, um, I'd say 11 years ago, I was sitting on my sofa in New Orleans when just a super random thought came into my head, and it was, I should run a half marathon. Now, that's not a, a thought that comes into many people's heads, but for some reason it just popped in there, and it was one of those thoughts that once it was in there, it just wouldn't go away. I don't know if you've ever had these, and in like day after day for about a week, I just kept thinking, like, I wonder if I could do it. I wonder what it would be like. And so finally on one spring afternoon, I decided, you know what? I'm going to run a half marathon. I don't know where. I don't know when. I certainly don't know how. I'm kind of like um, Baymax from Big Hero 6. I'm not fast. Um, and it was one of those kinds of situations where it's like, I don't really know where to even start. So I did what anyone would do. I went and bought new running shoes. I went and bought an iPod Nano, which they don't even make anymore. Um, I told Leanne, I was like, hey, I think I'm going to run a half marathon. And she just looked at me and said, uh-huh, okay. I downloaded as much information as I could for a training schedule, and I kind of mapped everything out, and I, and I figured, okay, in a year's time, I should be able to run a half marathon. And the first bit of advice that it really said was, you need to gauge how far and how long, like the duration that you can jog without having to stop. So one day, I, I laced up my shoes, I walked over to City Park to the track, and there was all these people, you know, doing their, their exercises and running and walking. And I got up to the edge, and I just kind of stood there having that internal conversation with myself of like, what are you doing? You don't know what you're doing. Why are you here? And just kind of going back and forth. And finally, it was like, okay, just take a step. Just get on the track and just start walking. So I did. And I walked a lap, and then I walked a second lap and a third lap. And by the fourth lap, I was like, okay, I, I've got I've to see if I could jog and see how far I, could, I can do this. So I rounded the turn, and I figured, you know, the, the straightaway, the 100-yard straightaway would be a good place to do this. So I reached the mark, started to jog, didn't make it 30 yards, doubled over, gasping for air, like stitching my side going, oh my gosh, this is where I'm going to die and no one's going to know because none of these people know me. And I stand up and you know when you, like, when you do something too much, you have that, that crick right here and I'm just pushing and I see out of the corner of my eye this woman standing on the side of the track just staring at me. And in that moment, I felt humiliated. And listen, if you've spent more than 20 minutes with me, you know that's not something that happens. Like, I don't get embarrassed. I'm really good at embarrassing other people, but I don't typically get, like, uncomfortable and embarrassed. And in that moment, I just wanted to disappear. And I don't know if you've ever had those moments where in, like, a second and a half, every negative thought you've ever had in your life comes flooding in. That was me in that moment. And then this woman just smiled. And she looked at me and she said, baby, they call you baby in New Orleans, um, especially if they like you, uh, baby, you can do it. I don't know what you're trying to do, but you can do it. And then she walked away. Sometimes in life, we reach our quit line before we've even started. And sometimes it just takes being reminded of the truth 
to keep us going. Over the last six weeks, we've talked about what it means to connect to God, to find your people, to change the world. We've talked about why Area 10 faith community even exists. And last week, we talked about giving and generosity and how in all those moments, there is this this quit line that we reach that we just want to give up. We're tired, we're exhausted, things haven't worked out the way that we thought we would, and we just want to stop. But when we push through, something happens. Something inside of us changes. Something about the Spirit of God really takes hold. And so this morning, I wanted to ask the question, what does it look like for us to finish strong? I think a hard truth um, for a lot of people to navigate is the things in life worth having come at a cost. And that's not something we always want to hear, but it, but it does. It might cost you time or money or energy. It might cost you your reputation, your comfort. Um, it, it will cost you. The things in life worth having come at a cost. And the hope, joy, and peace that comes with following Christ is no different. Forgiveness and salvation are free, offered to anyone. But being a follower of Christ will cost you. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, I want to ask you to open up to the book of Acts. Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament. It's the book right after the book of John. And we're going to camp out in chapter 20. The book of Acts was written by the apostle Luke. And it's really um, kind of an eyewitness, really detailed account of, of the birth of the church of the expansion of the church, of how quickly it spread, and really um, just, a, just a great example of what happens when we take Jesus' words to heart. At that time, they weren't called Christ followers. They weren't called Christians. It wasn't called the church. They were simply referred to as the way. Now, if you watch The Mandalorian, which you should, um, they say, the way, this is the way. They didn't come up with that. This is a biblical concept. Before we ever were called the church, before we were ever called Christians, before we were ever called Christ followers, we were called the way. And in chapter 20, we're going we're gonna to take a look at the Apostle Paul. And a quick primer on Paul. Paul was a devout Jew who was increasingly against and really violent towards people who followed Christ, people of the way. At that time, these, um, these people just really got under his skin because they represented everything that, that he was against. But then he had an encounter with Jesus, his life changed and everything changed. Up to that point, though, the defining aspect of Paul's life was his opposition to the church, was his opposition to the way. But once that changed, Paul really dedicated his life to Christ and the purpose that Christ had for him. It's a purpose that we share He went from overseeing the violent persecution to those who followed Christ to becoming a church planner, a teacher, a prolific writer. Most of the New Testament are the words written by Paul and ultimately a martyr. He died for the very thing he fought against. And in Acts chapter 20, we pick up near the end of Paul's life. He is speaking to the Ephesian elders in the Ephesian church, and he had a lot of um, just strong emotion and heart towards the Ephesian people because he spent a lot of time there, more time than in most any other place that he spent. He spent a lot of time there. And he knows and they know that this is, this is probably going to be the last time that they ever see each other. And so Paul is wanting to communicate some core fundamental truths. We're going to pick up in verse 18. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility 
and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So the first thing we need to notice is that this is personal. And no matter how good a teacher is, there's always something lost in translation when you go from the original language of Greek to English. There's, there just is. Sometimes it's, it's contextual cues, but more times than not, it's really um, a, a more full picture of the emotion behind something you're reading. The English language doesn't always do the best job of, of really captivating the true feeling of what's being said. To give you an idea of how intensely personal this is to Paul, it's the equivalent to when you hear those stories of a parent who has a terminal disease, and they're wanting to make a video for their children so that their children will remember those foundational truths that the parent wants them to know. It's, it's that kind of personal. The language that he's using, the emotion behind it is that kind of personal. It's that weight and meaning and purpose. The language he's using is, is focused on reminding the elders of the Ephesian church and in turn us today, really just what it means to follow Christ what it means to care for the church, what it means to care for the people around you, even those you disagree with, what it means to be tender-hearted to those who are suffering or in pain, what it means to mourn for those who turn away from Christ or who ignore truth. But it also speaks to the importance of perseverance. At this point in Paul's life, he has gone through more than I will ever understand in my own life. He has faced trial after trial and persecution after persecution, and yet he kept going. It speaks to the need for steadfast endurance and tough skin in the face of the inevitable trials that every one of us face. But it also speaks to a fundamental truth that we see throughout Paul's life, that we see throughout all of Paul's writings throughout the New Testament, that Paul's allegiance to Christ dictated the conduct of his life. What you put your allegiance in determines the conduct of your life. Which is a trap that I think a lot of us have fallen into at one point or another. Misappropriated allegiance. Instead of our allegiance being to Christ, we allow so many other things to take precedence. And the conduct of our lives really shows it. I think we love Jesus as the Savior, because honestly, deep down, I think we recognize that we need to be saved, and we like those hero stories. There's a reason that hero stories in film and in books and in TV shows and stories that we're naturally drawn to them, and all of us know that there's no greater heroic act than the sacrifice of one's life for the lives of others, right? Like, it's, there's something about that that makes our heart leap that we're drawn to. We love Jesus as Savior because I think we understand that we need to be saved. We know that we need a hero. We know that we need forgiveness. We know that we need grace. We know that there are bits inside of us that are broken and hurt from things that have happened to us, whether by other people or things we have caused ourselves. We know that we live in a broken world. And so we, we cry out for a hero and we're grateful for a savior because we're so grateful that that hope and grace exists. But we don't like Jesus as Lord. That's not something people like to talk about. We don't like the idea of having to surrender our will to somebody else's. We don't like expectation placed on us. 
We want to be who we want to be, not who God has called us to be. Mark Moore says this, The cross is not merely what Jesus did for us, but a way of life to which he calls us. For those that have surrendered their lives to Christ, I need you to hear and understand that there is a call on your life. The disciples of Christ knew this. Paul knew and understood this. The early followers of the way knew this. There is a call on your life. Verse 22. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions awaits me. Paul is just incredibly aware of what's going on. It speaks to the reality and the power of the Holy Spirit and how he works in our lives. Paul is not putting his head in the sand. He's not creating some alternate universe for himself to live in happily. He is acutely aware of what's coming. And before his final goodbyes and tearful departure, he says this, verse 24, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course with the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Or another way to understand this. What matters most to me is to finish what God started. Jesus gave me, or Jesus gave me of letting everyone I meet know all about this incredibly extravagant grace and love of God. Now, Paul isn't saying that his life doesn't matter, that his life is of no consequence. What he's saying is that what matters most is that he is called to something different, that he is called to something more, something that is far greater than his own perceived value. Paul chose to pursue the purpose that Christ had for him, and it's the same purpose that Christ has for us, to testify correctly and rightly to the grace of the gospel of Christ. Now, that doesn't mean, I want to be clear, that doesn't mean that you're not going to have your own hopes and dreams. It doesn't mean you don't have your own giftedness. It doesn't mean you don't have your own likes and dislikes and how we're wired. What I'm saying is that overarching, if you are a Christ follower, we share a call on our life, no matter the outward influences, no matter the challenges, no matter how many times we've stumbled or or have fallen, no matter how times we might have failed, we are called to something more. We are called to be disciples in the world in which we live to follow Christ and to testify rightly to the gospel of God's grace. Four and a half years, by the way, that's how long it took me to finally participate in a half marathon. Four and a half years of training and conditioning. There were starts and stops. There were injuries. There were times when I just wanted to quit. There were times when I did quit and then I started over again. Four and a half years. In that time, we moved from Nashville, or from New Orleans to Nashville. Leanne started grad school. Isabella was midway through elementary school. I had been promoted at my job twice, four and a half years, until one evening in Indianapolis, Indiana, of all places, I joined a whole bunch of people I didn't know to complete 13.1 miles. And I got to be honest, when I was in like the scrum of everybody, My thought wasn't, God help me finish. My thought was, please don't let me be last. Please don't let me be last, which is so dumb. But that was the only thought in my head because I'm like, I just don't want to be last. Oh oh yeah, I should probably, I should finish, but I don't want to be last. And you're in your little corral and you're waiting for the gun to go off or the air horn and it does and you start to, to jog or run and you see people just 
take off like lightning and you're like, okay, well, clearly I'm not going to keep pace with them. And then you have people falling behind and then you, you end up around people running roughly the same pace as you. And it's all fun and exciting. I mean, there's people with signs cheering people on and hooping and hollering. And when they see people they know, they'll go, they go like crazy and you can't help but smile and feel encouraged. But I noticed the further we went along, those people on the side of the road got less and less and less. And this particular half marathon wasn't like one big course. It was essentially a giant loop. So we had to do the loop, I think, I think it was four times, maybe five times. And so by the time we started the second lap, there was like hardly anybody like, no signs. I mean, you might see a couple of family members. Like, I saw my family, my, my mom and my uh, stepdad and grandmother, and then Bella and Leanne were all there. It was a whole thing. But there wasn't really people there, and I was just kind of like, oh, that, that stinks. And so I asked the guy that I had been jogging with, like, he, he'd run a couple of these before, and he goes, yeah, they get bored, and they just kind of move on. And I think he saw on my face that I was, like, really discouraged, and he goes, but hey, man, listen, you're doing great. Like, keep it up. You can do this. And I immediately went back to New Orleans. The moment he said, hey, you can do this, I, I just remembered that woman standing on the side of the track saying, baby, you can do this. I realized after probably mile six that it was really people running the race that were the biggest cheerleaders because they got it. They were running the same race. If someone passed you, they shouted encouragement to you because they didn't want you to be discouraged that they passed you. If you looked tired, someone would engage you to get your mind off of the fact that you were tired. If you stumbled, people stopped and helped you and made sure that you were okay. If you looked dehydrated, someone would stay with you to the next water table just to make sure that you were okay. Everyone just cheered each other on because we were running the same race. Right now, in this point in history, more people than ever before claim to know Jesus. And yet so few actually follow him. You can't push through your quit line. You can't finish strong if you're not even in the race. The reality is we have a lot of people who are just standing on the side of a road, holding up a sign, being really loud until they get bored and move on. Underneath all aspects of Area 10 is one mission, to make disciples, to equip people to run the race and finish strong. Sometimes um, I think it's, it's easy to get tripped up on terminology or methodology, and even that word discipleship really sounds foreign to our ears because it's not something that that we really talk about and we probably don't teach about it enough and it's not something that you hear in the normal vernacular of society around you. So when you hear it, it's just kind of like, what? Okay, and then you move on. So this morning, I just wanted to real briefly give us some real broad brush strokes to give you an idea of what discipleship is and what every Christ follower is called to do. The first is this. Every follower of Christ should be helping those who don't believe by testifying to the grace of God. And I want to be really clear about this because it seems oftentimes what we've made testifying to the grace of God is standing up somewhere and condemning people to hell when that's not our job at all. Our job is to meet needs, to build a relationship, 
to love people truly, to show up for them in ways that they don't expect, to show up for them even in disagreement. Our job is to present truth in love, not condemn people with truth, but let the truth of God and the Holy Spirit work through us. Our job is to show up for people even after disagreement. Number two, every follower of Christ should be helping other followers of Christ grow more mature because we're running the same race. We get it. We should be encouraging one another. We should be challenging one another. We should be keeping one another accountable. We should show up for one another. It says in Scripture that we should bear with one another's burdens. We can't do that if we're not interacting with one another. And then lastly, every follower of Christ should be seeking to get help for themselves. And that looks different in in multiple ways. Number one, it means learning what it means to feed yourself. What it means to study scripture, what it means to lean into prayer, to learn what it means to fast, to dig into spiritual rhythms. But it also means understanding that there are moments in your life when you need help and it is absolutely appropriate and okay to ask for help. All of those things are a part of discipleship. But what happens more times than not in the Western church is that instead of testifying to the grace of God, we create an environment of us versus them. Instead of helping other followers of Christ be more mature, we keep to ourselves and we keep up our barrier because we don't want to be vulnerable because it makes us feel uncomfortable. Instead of learning how to feed ourselves, we blame others for not feeding us. Or when we need help, we buy into the lie that asking for help means that we're weak. Discipleship is not something that you simply arrive at. It's not something that you just decide, okay, I'm, I'm good, I'm done. It's a lifelong marathon that is mo- meant to focus our eyes and hearts on the cross of Christ as we live fulfilling and transformative lives. But that won't happen if our allegiance is misplaced. If our allegiance is to money, it's going to show. We've all seen this. If our allegiance is to power, it shows. If our allegiance is to a political party or conspiracy theory, I think we've all seen that. If our allegiance is to a noble cause, recognize that even the most noble of causes can still create monsters. If our allegiance is to our gender, our race, our nation, our social status, eventually it is going to show You can say that you follow Christ all you want, but when you put something above Christ, eventually it's going to show that that is what your allegiance goes towards. Do not forget that what you put your allegiance in determines the conduct of your life. Paul, as he neared the end of his life, he wanted to remind the Ephesian church of that fundamental truth to finish strong to keep going, to not give up, to be reminded of the truth that they know that Jesus lived and spoke about, to be reminded of the truth that Paul himself taught. Like in 2 Corinthians 5.15, Paul says, He died for all, Christ, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Christ, who for their sakes died and was raised. The biggest lie we are told in this life is that this life is all about us, and it's not. It's not, but it's a lie we so easily hold close. In fact, 
A recent study published in Popular Science points out something that I think is actually pretty obvious. It said that those in the Western world, and in America in particular, it showed that they are incredibly selfish. They found that overall, after all the studies and interviews, overall Americans are less motivated to do something challenging, meaning it's going to cost them something if it benefits the common good, but are more willing to take on a challenge if it solely benefits themselves. In a study by Psychology Today, it said that all evidence points to the fact that selfishness negatively impacts every one of our interpersonal relationships. And in a British study a few years back, it was found that selfishness gives us the same dopamine hit that drugs like heroin do. Meaning selfishness and selfish decisions make us feel really good for a moment. But like heroin, it's temporary and it fades And so we begin to train ourselves to lean into selfish behavior because we want to make ourselves feel good because we live in such a broken world. Now, ironically, even as I say this, you're probably thinking of all the selfish people you know because, let's face it, we know those people. But we forget that we're also those people. Because it's so easy to buy into the lie that this life is all about us. You know what else multiple studies have found about selfishness? that those who focus on their own self-interest have higher addiction rates. They're more and more isolated and lonely than the general populace because they sabotage and injure all of their personal relationships. They struggle more with purpose and significance, leading to an ever-increasing desire for power and control. And they show higher rates of divorce and abuse of all kinds. The reason, the way, was so countercultural. The reason, the way, spread like wildfire through the Roman Empire and through the, the, the Middle East is because it was focused on Christ and only Christ. Jesus himself laid this out for us, Luke 9.23, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Not once a week, Not, I believe in Jesus and so now I'm good. Not once a month, not once a year, but daily. It takes discipline. Around mile 11, I knew I wasn't going to make it. I just didn't have anything left in the tank. My legs hurt, my knees hurt, my joints hurt. I wanted to be sick. I was so tired, and I thought to myself, you know what? 11 miles is pretty dang good, considering I couldn't even run 30 yards four and a half years ago. And so my slow jog became a slow walk, and I began to make my way to the last water station, and they had guys in golf carts ready to take those who had fallen behind or injured or couldn't keep up with the time parameters, and I just knew, like, you know what? No one's going to fault me. It's going to be okay. And then I heard some shuffling of feet coming up behind me, and it was an older couple, about 10 years older than me, that I had talked to earlier. And he gets up right next to me, and he's panting, and he's exhausted, and he just looks like he wants to die. (sighs) 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 Only a mile and a half more. We're almost there. And he just kept running with his wife ahead. To finish strong, you have to be in the race. And really, the race is embracing the call of discipleship in our lives. I'm so excited for our next message series 
because we're going to be really diving deep into what this looks like, what this means, looking at spiritual rhythms, those things that we can begin to cultivate in our lives that God has called us to do to help our eyes be focused on him and to live the lives that we are supposed to live. But before next week, I wanted to give you a few things that you could at least begin to lean into to get a better idea of the things that God is calling us to do. Number one, serve regularly. Serve with one of our local partners. Find ways to serve your family, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers. Join a serving team here at church. We're always looking for more people to join a team here to be a blessing to those that come to church. But serve regularly. We're, we're called to, we're commanded to serve regularly. But you know what happens when you serve regularly? You actively are battling your own self-interest. You're actively waging war on your own selfishness. So serve regularly. Number two, join a group. Our small group signups are open right now. They're going to launch the week of February 14th, Valentine's Day, and Rachel's birthday, by the way, so you could wish her a happy birthday. Um, And listen, small groups aren't the answer to everything. You know, like you're not suddenly, all of life isn't going to be fixed just because you're in a group. But we are called to be in community. And in a time in life where we're more and more isolated, more and more separated, and this is even before COVID, it's as important as ever to engage with other people. Our small groups are designed to just live life with one another, to laugh with each other, to learn with each other, to pray with one another, and to learn what it means to bear with one another's burdens. So if you are not signed up for a group, I want to encourage you to sign up for a group. And you could do that on our website or app. Number three, go deeper. For those that are wanting to go deeper in their relationship with Christ, for those that um, are really interested in what it what it means to just dig into those spiritual rhythms and spiritual disciplines, we have something new that's going to be launching in March. And we've been working on this over the past year because what we realized pretty quickly was we can only do so much on a Sunday morning. Um, Church isn't just Sunday morning. We can only do so much through small groups or through, you know, children or youth. Like, there's only so much we can do. And really what we need to be doing is focusing more intentionally on equipping people to live every day in these spiritual disciplines. So we are starting something called formation groups. And these groups will consist of three or four people who commit to an entire year to meet together once a week to focus on study and accountability and prayer and really a pinpoint focus on spiritual rhythms. So if you are interested in being a part of that, and and listen, I'm, I'm not saying if you think you're ready. I don't care if you're ready. We can always talk about all the reasons why we're not ready to do anything, but really sometimes we just need to take a step. So what I am asking you to do is that if you are interested and you feel that call in your life and you know you want to go deeper, email me at topher at area10church.com and I'm happy to give you all of the information. Number four, give. Overall, giving was down 6% in 2020 across churches and nonprofits. And the easy cause to point to is COVID, except when you dig into the numbers and you dig into the statistics, it doesn't explain why political donations by individuals were up by over 15%. The reality is, generosity is a discipline that most of us struggle with, unless it benefits us directly. Giving to receive is not generosity. Giving to receive is not obedience. Giving to receive is simply reciprocity. It's a quid pro quo. And we are called to be different. And giving has the unique aspect similar to serving. 
When you give, when you're intentionally giving, when you're intentionally sacrificial, you're actively battling your selfish nature. Number five, give up something. The season of Lent is quickly approaching. Last year, we did something new for the first time. It kind of got a little wonky because of everything that happened in March. Uh, But we are once again inviting people to participate in three different Lenten pathways. And these pathways challenge an individual to lay something down for 40 days so that they could pick up Christ, so they could focus more intentionally on Jesus, his death, and resurrection. We have the traditional path, which focuses on fasting from meat. We have the analog path, which focuses on fasting from social media and other types of media. And then we have the sustainable path, which focuses on um, not buying anything new. And if you go to our website, uh, they, it's all spelled out on what each path consists of, and you can sign up there if you're interested in joining one of those groups, but definitely want to encourage you to do that. And then lastly, number six, be present. Show up. Show up for your family and your friends. Be present with your coworkers and neighbors. Show up to church. Like, come here. Like, sit in the seats. Worship with us. Learn with us. Show up to your small group or your formation group. But just be present. Don't let fear be a reason that you don't reach out to someone. Don't let laziness be the excuse to not go deeper. And don't let shame Don't let shame be a reason that you think that you're not good enough for God. That afternoon on my sofa in New Orleans, I'm not sure I ever, um, I'm not sure I ever really thought that I would (laughs) finish a half marathon. There were plenty of legitimate reasons why. Um, There were plenty of empty excuses that I gave myself. But as I rounded the corner of that final bit of track and the MC of the event ran out to me and he jogged with me towards the finish line and I saw my daughter with a sign that said, Go Daddy Go. And I crossed the finish line. If I'm honest, I wanted to throw up. But after that, (laughs) after that, I was just overwhelmed with the sense of joy for finishing the race, for not giving up, and being reminded of that lady in New Orleans on the side of the track saying, baby, you can do it. We all know what it's like to live in a broken world. We all know what it's like to be tired and frustrated and to not understand what's happening. We all know what it's like to believe in something and have our faith shaken, and we know what it's like to give up. And sometimes I I think um, we just need to be reminded that someone believes in us just to tell us that we can do it, that we're almost there. So A10, I believe in you. I know that Chris believes in you. I know that Rachel and TJ and Allie and Dave and Kat and all of our elders and leadership believe in you. And baby, you can do it. One of the greatest joys of my life is being able to rest in the knowledge that Jesus believes in me and that he believes in you too. 
cheering us on, telling us constantly that we can do it. And the best news of all, that he's with us there the entire time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am so grateful for your grace that in those moments when we want to quit, when we reach that quit line, that you challenge us and encourage us and remind us to push through. God, that your spirit is mighty and active. God, I don't know where people are in their faith journey this morning. I don't know if they've never thought about you before in their entire lives or they've been a Christian their entire lives, but God, I pray that your spirit speak directly to their hearts and their minds and the power in which only you can do. God, that no matter where we're at on our journeys, no matter where we're at on this race, that our eyes and our hearts will begin to be drawn towards you and towards discipleship and what it means to actually pick up our cross and follow you daily. And God, I pray that you use this faith community to be loud as we possibly can to tell one another, you can do it. Keep going. We're almost there. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.